The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, let's get in character. I'm so interested in Big Man's wife. Well, he's going out of town in Florida and he asked me if I take care of him while he's gone. Take care of him? No, man. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts. It never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that matter. Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in the garage. Take me to it. Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Rames, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Looking at something for you. my friend, Luca. Die, you mother! A new film. Directed by Quentin Tarantino. Pulp Fiction. You really thinking about quitting? Most definitely. Of course you're going to do that. Basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. <laughs> Tracy, we are so excited for our upcoming live event in Indianapolis with Tragedy of Cinema and Middle-Aged and Creeped Out. Yes, we're looking forward to seeing all of you. I'm Todd. I'm Nate. And I'm Sean. And we are Middle-Aged and Creeped Out. 
We are looking forward to sharing some creepy stories with all of our hometown listeners. I'm Jimbo with The Tragedy of Cinema. And I'm Kyle, also with Tragedy of Cinema. India is also our hometown, and we have the perfect horror movie to break down for you guys. Come out and see us on Saturday, July 16th at the VFW on South Lockburn and help veterans at the same time. All three shows are clean, so this is a family-friendly event. Tickets are just $20. Seating is limited, so get your tickets now at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo, and joined again today by... The loving co-host, Pulp, Fic- uh, Pulp Fiction Kyle. That's Pulp Fiction <laughs> Kyle. That's my name now, <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. We, we like the Pulp Free Kyle. <laughs> the Pulp Free Kyle. I like I, know, I like some Pulp Kyle. Some Pulp Kyle, that's a, that's a, that's a mainstay in the home. <laughs> so, as you can tell, today we'll be talking about the uh, Quentin Tarantino film, Pulp Fiction, uh, episode 105. But before we get started, I got... A question, then I got another question, Kyle. First of all, what would you consider to be your favorite John Travolta movie? John Travolta movie? Oh, boy. That's a really good question. Um, it's kind of a toss-up between Phenomenon and and Face Off. I was going to say Face Off or Grease. I really like Grease, too. Grease is really good. Uh, it's not in my same kind of like... Uh, my muse, my cachet, or my interest, I guess I'd say, but like Grease is really good in its own right and I respect it. But like Phenomenon, I just, I love it as a good heartwarming film that I just really enjoy watching. But Face Off is just so, so hammy that I just love it. It's John Volta being Nicolas Cage, and that kind of combination is just perfect to me. So I think I'm gonna say Phenomenon just because it's more John Volta. But Face Off is so good because it's John Volta being Nick Cage. I love it. All right, Kyle. So, second question. This movie. Has one of the greatest lines and was voted number 81 by Premier, uh, quote, which is, you know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? And the answer was, a they call it a royale with cheese. cheese. Yeah. My question to you is, what does Kyle call a quarter pounder with cheese? Gone. <laughs> in 60 seconds. <laughs> So, so that was my question and joke for you. God, I thought that was funny. <laughs> Terrible, Jim. Terrible. Yeah, but you laugh, so it's funny. Uh, that's yeah. That's, that's all. Uh, so, um, so here we go. We're talking about Pulp Fiction. Um, just so you know, if you have not watched this movie, it is a, a hard R. Yes. Uh, so, just for language alone, this, I'm sure this is a strong R movie. Yeah, sure. I believe um, the F word. Yes, is used. Uh, 265 times, which... Wouldn't be surprised if that makes it like... Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like a record holder for a time for having uh, that many F-words, actually. Well, I don't know. Scarface is per- probably up Scarface there, Scarface did so. have a lot and definitely came up before this. So. Right. So uh, I'll look that up while you go ahead and start. Okay. So we have Pulp Fiction, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino of, you know, all of Tarantino's... Um, what, eight or nine films now at this point, the fame? And also um, written by Roger Avery for the stories. Um, we have the budget for the film of $8 million in 1994. Very modestly budget for the time, even. Um, that'd be worth about $14.6 million today in terms of budget. For the opening weekend, it made $9.3 million, which would be equivalent to about $17 million today. Um, gross for um, U.S. and Canada, um, that's where it made the big money, where it made $107.9 million dollars. Um, which would be worth about $196 million today, so it made big return on investment there for the Pulp Fiction film. And then gross worldwide, it made twice that again for $213.9 million, 
which is the equivalent of like $390 million today. So huge earnings on this film. Big, big, but, you know, uh, small budget, big earnings, everything a Hollywood executive loves. <laughs> um, let's see here. We're going to go on to the technical details here. We have a runtime of 115 minutes, um, 178 minutes for the original cut of the film, which makes it about, uh, I think, uh, just under 20 minutes longer than the Forrest Gump. Actually, the longest movie to be um, up for like Best Picture that year, I believe. Um, let's see here. We have the sound mix in Dolby Digital. Color info is color movie. Aspect ratio is 2.39 by 1. Very wide aspect ratio, even for like um, big films such as this. Um, camera, we use a lot of Panavision um, C and E series lenses with the um, Airflex lens and 35mm um, printed format for film reels. Tarantino loves his uh, real film. And let's see here. We have um, release details too. Actually, it was released uh, on a, whoo, um, let's see here. Oh, different dates for, like, in France, it was released on May 21st. Germany was on November 3rd. And let's see here. I don't have the official American release date, actually. I think it was probably probably around May. It was going to be a summer flick, I imagine. Let's see if I can find it here a little bit later. So, mm-hmm. uh, just those that are wondering, um, Wolf of Wall Street um, was the number third, three movie with 569 F-words. 569. Uh, there was wow. two movies above it that one was like Squarenist or something like that. Some movies I've never heard of. And then Casino came in at like number six with 422 F-words. Um, strangely enough, Reservoir Dogs has more than Pulp Fiction by five, I think. And I didn't even see Scarface. Scarface only had 207. So, oh, wow. But then Scarface, it equivalated to like every 1.2, one for every 1.25 minutes or something like that. Yeah. So, so Martin Scorsese has like two of the top three movies of efforts in it. That's uh, good for you, Martin. <laughs> With Casino and Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> so moving on here, we're going to go on to the awards section of the show. We have, let's see, awards for Oscar nominations. We won Best Original Screenplay. Won Best Supporting Actor, related to um, Samuel Jackson. Um, Best Picture. Uh, let's see, wait, wait, this is actually the... Right page, right? Yes, it is. I believe so. And we also won Best Film Editing. Let's see here. In 2013, it got the third place award for the Key Art Awards for Best Trailer in Audiovisual Format. In 2013, it was added to the National Film Preservation Board. Also in 2013, it was added to the Online Film and Television Association's Hall of Fame. In 2003, it also won the Key Art Award for Best Trailer in Audio and Visual. Oh, uh, Key Art Award for... Oh, that's actually the same word. Oh, 2013, it won the Best Trailer for Audio and Visual with the Key Awards. In 2003, it won the award. I don't know what the Key Art Awards are. (laughs) But they have some interesting choices, I guess. Let's just nominate the movie again another year and not win. (laughs) I love that idea. I figured the Oscars did that like every year just nominate the same movies and just decide who wins. How do you feel about this year? I don't know. You still think it's the best picture? I don't know. That'd be funny. Um, let's see here. We have Oscar wins. We have the best writing um, awarded to Quentin Tarantino and um, Robert uh, Roger Avery. Sorry, Roger Avery, not Robert. And then 1995, we also have the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, where it won the Saturn Award for Best Action, Adventure, or Thriller Film. Then in the 1995 Association of Polish Filmmakers Critics Awards, it won the Best Foreign Film. Or honorable mention for best foreign film, anyways. We're going through a lot of pages here. We have the Blue Ribbon Awards, where it won best foreign language film again. Awards to Quentin Tarantino. 
1995 Brit Awards. It won the Best Soundtrack Awards, completely appropriate. You know, had an excellent soundtrack, Pulp Fiction. In '95, it also won the Best Casting for Feature Film Award from the Casting Society of America. And then the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, it won Best Director, Best Screenplay. And then '95, it also had the Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critics Association Awards, where it won Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Screenplay. Also in '95, it won the Edgar Allan Poe Awards for Best Motion Picture. And the Empire Awards in the UK in 95, it won Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Feature, Best Male Lead, awarded to Samuel L. Jackson, and Best Director again, awarded to Quentin Tarantino. For the Golden Globes Award in 95, it won Best Screenplay for Motion Picture. Then 95, it also the um, Cinema Jumpo Awards, it won the Best Foreign Language Film Director for Quentin Tarantino. And then the London Critics Film Circle Awards, it won the Screenwriter of the Year to Quentin Tarantino, Actor of the Year to John Travolta. It also won the MTV Movie Award for Best Movie. 95, and the National Society of Film Critic Awards, it won Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Film. And also 95, it won the Southeastern Film Critic Association Awards for Best Director. Then again in 94, for the Awards Circuit Community Awards, it won Best Motion Picture, Best Ensemble Cast, Best Film Editing, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Director. So sweep the Awards Circuit Community Awards. <laughs> Has awards twice. What a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, ACCA. I'm sure you're a shuffle organization, but also you put awards twice in your name. It's like the planet of the, the apes. Yeah, don't want to say that thing out loud. And the Boston Society of Film Critic Awards, it won Best Film, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. At the Keynes Film Festival Awards, it won the Best um, Paul Deor for Quentin Tarantino. Paul Deor, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it's good. The Kansas City, City Film Critics Circle Awards, it won Best Film, Best Director. In 94, for the Los Angeles Film Critics Association Awards, it won Best Screenplay, Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. And then 94, it also got the National Board of Review for the USA, where it won the best, it was added to the top 10 films that year, and best film, it tied with Forrest Gump, and best director, Quentin Tarantino. In 94, for the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, it won best director, best screenplay, and that is the awards of Pulp Fiction. There was many, many more, too, that you yeah, did not mention. A, a ton of nominations. And you have to think, of, at that point of winning that many awards... You get exhausted by it. I could imagine, like, like that, that is like, got to be a thing, like, like the ultimate problem to have, I guess. But like, Quentin Tarantino directs this amazing film, and he just like every like week he's getting a new nomination or award. And he's like, "You're going to win this award. Come to this event in New York or Los Angeles." And it's like, I don't want to go. <laughs> I just did. I just got the highest. I got all the honors every single week coming. <laughs> so, Kyle, mm-hmm. what would you say the synopsis of Pulp Fiction is? Uh, for somebody that's never watched the movie story because uh, it's pretty weird gosh it, it, it is still like like I feel like I'm just like I'm struggling to be awake today so I don't I don't know the word on top of my head for it but it's almost like anthology like story of three separate stories uh, of a death causing a huge incident where people have to take refuge um, it starts with like Vincent Vega and Jules um, on a hunt for a suitcase. And them trying to bring the suitcase back to their boss, and um, hijinks ensue. <laughs> I, don't really, 
I, I can't. I, I can't do. It. I do. I do terrible synopsis. Three guys when you do them. <laughs> well, is there a plot summary right um, there in sure, front of you? Sure. You might want plot summary, but it has a Seymour. Okay, uh, Jules and Vega are two hitmen who are put to retrieve a suitcase from their stolen employer. Um, stolen from their employer. My boss, Marcellus Wallace. Wallace has been asked has asked Vincent to take his wife Mia out for a few days later. Then Wallace will be out of town. Butch is an aging boxer who has paid Wallace to lose his fight. The lives of these seemingly unrelated people are woven together, comprising of a series of funny, bizarre, and uncalled for incidents. Pretty pretty much <laughs> that that does wrap it up pretty well, but also like it's still vague enough where it's like yeah, because like thing just random things happen in this movie, and that's kind of the whole movie is like incidents happen. And they have to deal with it, and that's kind of funny, um, or serious in a way. You know? um, right. Mostly resolved around like, "Hey, a surprise death happens, and now everything is in the state of flux, where we have to get, we have to resolve this death and bury it, basically, before we can move on with our lives." Um, yeah, also story of salvation to a degree too. I'll get that later in the notes. Um, but moving on here, we have the cast of Pulp Fiction. I kept this one short and sweet because I wanted to get the main characters out of the way, and then we'll move on to the uh, meat of the podcast. We have Tim Roth playing Pumpkin, <laughs> who you see at the beginning of the film. Um, Tim Roth is also best known for movies such as The Hateful Eight in 2015, um, the 2001 Planet of the Apes. Uh, he was on the show Lie to Me for the three seasons where he was the main star. And he will appear in the upcoming She-Hulk show. Um, he was also in the Incredible Hulk movie um, a few years back. Um, so it's cool to see that. And he's still a canon Hulk character. He's, <laughs> he plays Abomination, which I think is funny. Um, Tim Roth. Fun actor. I like him a lot. Then we have Amanda Plummer playing Honey Bunny. <laughs> Uh, also recognized such film, um, can be seen in the beginning of the film, and she's also been in films such as The Fisher King in '91, Abigail Harm in 2012, and Honey Glue in 2015. Next up, we have John Travolta playing Vincent Vega. Uh, uh, John Travolta, of course, best known for movies such as Face Off '97, Grease in 1978, and Broken Arrow '1996. And actually, didn't run a phenomenon, but I was that down there too. Yeah, yeah, that down there. Just that huge call out to phenomenon. Or Saturday Night Fever. Really. Saturday Night Fever also. That's that's his breakout role, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah I should put that one on there too. Yeah, I, I was too lazy when I wrote this, I guess. Um, then we have Samuel L. Jackson playing Jules Winfield. Um, Samuel L. Jackson probably perhaps most recognized right now for his role in Nick Fury in the MCU, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe nowadays, and also as Mace Windu in the Star Wars um, prequel trilogy. Um, he's also Frozone in The Incredibles, and uh, he was in Die Hard of Vengeance as Zeus in 1995. Honey, and a where's t- my super suit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think Ted Two kind of summarizes it pretty well too. Sometimes it's, just like, it's like, who's Samuel Jackson? It's like, have you seen any movie? He's the black guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of like how prevalent his roles uh, are. Snakes like, on a plane. <laughs> snakes on a plane. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, Black Snake Moan. Uh, a ton of movies. Samuel Jackson. Like if you don't know him, you don't watch movies. <laughs> that's just, that's kind of long and short of it. Um, next up, we have Phil Lamar playing Marvin. A smaller role, but I like mentioning him because uh, Phil Lamar is just such a cool person in real life. Um, he plays Hermes Conrad in the Futurama series. Now coming back. For whatever, like the eleventh or twelfth season, I don't know. But like, it's just like, it keeps dying and coming back, and each time it's worse. But I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Futurama to me. Um, next up, he also was Samurai Jack in the Samurai Jack series, um, which I think it's finally over now. But I gotta, I gotta rewatch the whole series because I did those last two seasons in a movie, whatever they did, and I haven't watched those yet. Um, and he's a very prolific voice actor. I think he was also one of the Green Lanterns in the Justice League TV show and much other cool stuff. Philomar. Awesome actor. Next up, we have Christopher Walken playing Captain Coons. Uh, Christopher Walken, 
I assume Christopher Walken, right? Christopher Walken. It's Christopher Walken, right? Yeah, yeah Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken playing Captain Coons. Um, he's such films as The Deer Hunter, one of the movies we covered in the podcast not too long ago. Um, and let's see here. He's also in the... Uh, what did I write down here? He's in The Prophecy, I know. Yeah. Um, he was in The Prophecy. He was also in Sleepy Hollow in 1999. Um, Batman Returns in 1992. And uh, Click in 2006. Um, Christopher Walken, um, fantastic actor in his own right, too. Lots of movies um, outside of this one, too. One of the things like... He has such a, a mannerism how he speaks and how he looks that it's just like it's impossible to forget him when you see him. You, everyone knows Christopher Walken where he should. Next up, we have Vig Rhymes playing Marcellus Wallace. Um, he's been in the Mission Impossible films from 1996 um, to ongoing now. They still have two movies coming out of the back there, and he plays in there. Got an excellent role there. Uh, Vig Rhymes, also a great actor. And then we have Dawn of the Dead in 2004, which he was in, and Con Air in 1997. Yeah, uh, Vig Rhymes, kind of, I feel like, like, it's, like he's in a lot of big great films and yet still I feel like he's almost like underappreciated in those films he is because he's just a great character actor he's more like a sub character I guess he's, yeah yeah he's, he has such an imposing presence that he overwhelms it whereas like he, he gets defaulted as a bad guy or as a powerful guy and not as like an in-depth character but like he's a great actor in his own right too so uh, very I, I, I like Big Rhymes a lot too um, next up we have Butch, Bruce Willis playing Butch Cassidy uh, uh, Butch Coldridge Coolridge Coolridge Butch Cool Ridge. There we go. I got the word right this time. Um, Bruce Willis, of course, uh, huge mainstay actor in his own right, too. Unfortunately, just retired now. Um, understandable reasons. He has a mental um, things going on where he, he can all continue to act, sadly. But, of course, Bruce Willis is most recognized for playing in the Die Hard films from 1988 all the way to 2013. Some would say a decade after he should have stopped. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. Uh, <laughs> um, Sixth the Sense. Sixth Sense, The Fifth Element, the best Die Hard movie. <laughs> I love The Fifth Element. The Fifth Element's great. And uh, Armageddon, 98, and a ton of other films. Uh, Bruce Willis also, just like hugely recognized actor and a great um, dramatic performer as well. Um, Bruce Willis, uh, uh, I, I feel like Die Hard shoot him in for action roles too, but also he was a great dramatic actor in his own right as well. So Bruce Willis, cool dude in my book. Um <laughs> Next up, we have Uma Thurman playing Maya, Mia Wallace. Um, of course, Uma Thurman also recognized for a lot of the Quentin Tarantino films. She was in Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 in 2003 and 2004, respectively. Um, she was also in Gattaca in 1997. <laughs> Batman and Robin, everyone's favorite Batman movie, in 1997. One of the worst Poison Ivies of all time, I have to say. <laughs> but it, it, it went back around again where it's, it's, it's it, a generation has passed, so now it's so bad that it's actually perfect. <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's gone from like an insult to the ultimate form of flattery now. <laughs> um, and also, she was in The Producers in 2005, a movie I love a lot. And last and not least, we have Eric Stoltz playing Lance. Um, he was in movies such as Anaconda in 1997, A Mask in 1985, and Some Kind of Wonderful in 1987. Eric Stoltz, also excellent actor. Liked him in Anaconda. He was good. But that is the short and brief cast of Pulp Fiction. A lot of other actors, of course, but just like I just want to get through the mainstays for this cast list. Cause yeah, because there is a ton of people. A lot of, if I include everyone, I'd be here all day again, like for the awards. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that is the movie. So, Jimbo, take away from me. Takes me some, some notes we got. All right. Uh, there's a lot of these, too, so mm-hmm. buckle up. Yeah, so we had a lot of fanfare, a lot of news, so. So the passage from the Bible that Jules has memorized was mostly made up by Quentin Tarantino and Samuel L. Jackson. The first part about the righteous man and the tyranny of evil man is not real. It's not in the Bible. No. Uh, But the second half is, uh, and I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger, and you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee, is actually a direct quote from Ezekiel 25, 17. 
Um, the parts of Honey Bunny and Pumpkin were written specifically for Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth. You ever wonder about that, though, Kyle? If a part is specifically written for a character, a person, mm-hmm. and you can't get that person, do you have to go back in and change anything for the, like if they couldn't have got Samuel L. Jackson, do you so, think they could have went back in? Would have had to went back in and changed any uh, of the script to fit whoever they got? Because obviously, if you cast Arnold Schwarzenegger in a in a role for let's say Harrison Ford, you know there's there's going to be yeah. You know, so this happens actually a lot, and I, I, it, it drives me insane right now that I don't have one off the top of my head. But I know this happens a lot, especially for like action movie roles, even in the air of the Arnold Schwarzenegger too. Like, like that's how you get Bruce Willis sometimes is because like, hey, if we have this, in, like, if we want Stallone or Schwarzenegger in mind for Die Hard, and we get Bruce Willis instead, all of a sudden Bruce Willis is the breakout actor, becomes the next big star. But um, what, but do you or, think that a director says, hey, here's the script? And they know that they wrote that yeah, for that, that person because yeah. they know what that person will it, accept, and that way they'll be like they'll be more willing to accept the yeah. role. Or you have that, or or you have it in mind of like, okay, I want like you have an actor like like uh, I think this actually happened to Jack Black for one of his roles, but I can't remember like. But let's say you have any other actor, and all of a sudden for this one film, they're going to act like Tim Roth would have acted in this film. He's going to try and adopt his mannerisms to do this scene. And so you get this kind of off thing where like the actor is acting like another actor as they're acting as that character in that but scene. But do you think you that the that. director tells them, hey, I wrote this for this guy. This is how I want you to oh, act. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, ignoring, well. I'm ignoring the whole question you're asking. Right. Um, oh, yeah, I'd imagine so. Um, I or do think, you just say, here, here's the script, and not I, tell him and not tell the person that accepted the role that, hey, I wrote this for somebody else, but they didn't want to do it because they were too busy. I, that's not that's not as... Uh, I wouldn't take that as an insult if I were the actor being told that, necessarily. Um, like, I, I wrote this with, like, my friend or this actor in mind specifically, and, like, for the scene... I want to know, like, it depends, like, if you think that actor can do the scene themselves but their own mannerisms and still have a good scene, or you can tell that actor immediately, like, hey, I want you to do this scene like who my original actor would have done it. So try and do their mannerisms and their cadence and give me that scene. <laughs> hey, Harry Stoltz, I want you to act like Samuel L. Jackson while you're playing the part that I, I gave yeah, you yeah. that was written for Samuel L. Jackson. I, 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 think that, I, think that's a, I think that's completely valid. Um, and also, like, of course, like, when you're writing a movie, you want the bigger stars in the world to play in your movie, or you want your friends, and when you can't get them, you get somebody else, and you still want that performance, though, in the movie, because that's what you had in mind when you created it, and that's what you think the best product's going to be. So it's not, I, I think it'd be, it, it's almost like, that is kind of the default, almost, of actually film production, in my, in my assumption, I don't know, of course, but that's almost like a default in my mind of assumption, of like, okay, I wanted you to do this kind of energy in this film, I wanted this kind of character in mind, I wanted this kind of actor in mind, so this is what I want you to do me in his performance, and like, largely, they get that, so I think that's totally valid, of like, hey, I want you to, I want you to channel Samuel Jackson in this scene, I want you to channel Nick Cage in this scene, I want you to channel this actor, you know, even though I got you, I want you to be him, <laughs> you know, and that, that's fine, I think that's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> It, it works for a lot of actors, too. Right. Uh, Jules was originally written to have a gigantic afro, but a crew member obtained a variety of afro wigs and one jerry curl wig. Quentin Tarantino had never thought about a jerry curl wig, but Samuel L. Jackson tried it on, and Tarantino liked it so much that it was kept. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> His hair is it's awesome, dude. It, it's, it's so cool. It's so, like, it brings me, like, the, the... It's just 
makes his character complete. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, but, and, but a big afro would have worked too. And that's the thing too. Like Samuel Jackson, he can't pull a bad look. They make him wear a garbage bag and look and look awesome. Oh, he looks pretty rough. A black snake, snake moan though. You know what I mean? Uh, he did, but also still <laughs> cool though. Yeah. <laughs> Samuel uh, Jackson can never look uncool. <laughs> Uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, where Butch was meeting his connection and where his great-grandfather bought the gold watch, is also Quentin Tarantino's birthplace. So, Tarantino born in Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee. I didn't know that about him. That's really cool. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis wanted the role of Vincent Vega, but Quentin Tarantino turned him down in favor of John Travolta. Mm -hmm. Um, This is actually Samuel Jackson's only Oscar-nominated role. Everything else he either won or didn't get nominated for. Really? Yeah. Only, only nominated role, so he didn't win. Yeah. Has he won? Uh, I'll check. Let's see if he actually won any of the Oscars. But I'm pretty sure yeah, this is. I, I'm pretty sure he won an Oscar before, but I don't know if he. Actually... Uh, in a cutscene, Vincent tells Mia he's been fantasizing about uh, being beaten up by Emma Pill of the Avengers. Uma Thurman actually played Emma Pill in the Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> Oh, man. Uma Thurman originally turned down the role of Mia Wallace. Quentin Tarantino was so desperate to have her as Mia, he ended up reading her the script over the phone, finally convincing her to take on the role. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uma Thurman's so cool. <laughs> Just came over there. Um, let's see. I'm trying to find the Oscar ones right there. Um, oh. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, oh. Um, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't find it. Oh, uh, no. one minute. Uh, he, he, he did, re, he has won an Oscar. He has received an Oscar before. Um, but does it say for what? Uh, oh, for lifetime achievement award for Oscar award. Um, does that, does that really count? Star was with an honorary Academy okay, Award so, for lifetime achievement. So award not a real one. He award. just got a, yeah, a not lifetime even, achievement. A lifetime award. achievement award. It's like you've done a lot of great movies, but we're stuck. But we've never full, given you one for a just movie. a movie. Yeah, it's just a collected works. Uh, of course, we stated earlier at the beginning about the movie line. You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? They call it a. Royale cheese. <laughs> so number 81 of the 100 greatest movie lines by Premier in 2007. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know what Kyle calls it. Gone. Yep. Um, uh, the infamous pawn shop scene was filmed in the same store where Cindy, played by Mila Kunis, sells the stolen guitar in the film Extract. If you ever watched that movie. No, I haven't. It's all right. It's a Patrick Bateman, I believe it is. Patrick Bateman film. Um, he plays like a, a, a food manufacturer in a warehouse. It's a weird movie, but also kind of. Interesting. I'm, I'm sure no wonder you've watched it. Of course, it's a weird movie. I watched it. It's, it's some weird filmy film. No one should ever watch. And of course, I watched it twice. <laughs> uh, the 1964 Chevy Chevelle Malibu convertible, driven by Vincent Vega, belonged to writer and director Quentin Tarantino and was stolen during production of the film mm-hmm. in 2013. When did this come out, Kyle? 1997. So in 2013, a police officer saw two kids stripping an older car. He arrested them, and while looking up the owner of the vehicle, he found the VIN had been altered. It turned out that it was Tarantino's stolen car. The owner had recently purchased it and had no idea it was stolen. Yeah. Oh, 94, not 97. 2013. That's insane. So, wow. Okay, that's a... <laughs> wow, okay. I wonder if they got, is... like, uh, I wonder if Tarantino gave him any 
you know, yeah, so like, since, literally, 20, since the guy didn't know that who bought it, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean? 21 years later, found the car. That's crazy, yeah. All right, um, before the um initial hit, you see Vincent and Jules uh, perform. Um, they mentioned they have an inside man in Brett's apartment later, just before their business there is done. Jules recites his Bible quote as he recites the phrase describing himself as being the finder of lost children. He looks directly at the inside man. The chronology of the movie takes place over four days. Day one at 7.30 a.m. was hit by the apartment followed by the incident with Marvin. The cleanup and the holdup at the restaurant followed by the delivery of the case to Wallace and the encounter with Butch. This is also when Bush keyed Vincent's car, a detail later shared by an interview which is found in the special features of the Blu-ray of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so, kind of interesting. Like, you, you can actually, like, there's enough details there. You can timeline those four days together really, really well. And there's even some deleted scenes that are like, oh, okay, this is all interconnected in a way of, like, really good script writing from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Uh, there's a cameo by Steve Buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> where he was uh, having he had to refuse the role of Jimmy due to scheduling conflicts but Sammy appears as the buddy Holly waiter in Jack Rabbit Slims as Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs he refuses to tip the wait staff <laughs> yeah. that's, that's another thing too about like having the character in mind you can see Quinn Tarantino almost channeling Steve Buscemi when he plays D- Jimmy in that department scene I can totally see <laughs> Steve Buscemi doing that just because of the way Quinn Tarantino played him um, fun fact about Jimmy DeMake's house um, it was filmed just a quarter mile from the um, Brady um, Bunch's family house in the Brady Bunch show huh. yeah fun fact there Oh, I actually have more of the timeline stuff, too. Um, oh, the second day is unaccounted for, but there's been to be when Jules began his uh, walkabout when he decided to walk the land as a nomad, basically like that. And on the third day um, was most likely when Butch and Fabian checked into the motel, followed by the prize fight that evening. The same evening, Vincent went to Lance's house to buy drugs. He tells Lance that his car had been keyed the other day. This indicates that the day had probably been two days earlier, otherwise he would have said, Yesterday, which accounts for the gap of the second day. This is also followed by the outing with Mia, the overdose, and the return to Lance's house. And then on the fourth day, the morning of the fourth day, was when Vince attempted to hit the Butch, uh, attempted to go in the Butch Farms, followed by the incident with Zed and Wallace, and the departure of Butch and Fabian. Cool. All right. So there is a myth um, that a lot of people talk about that all the clocks in the movie are set to 420. Uh, although certainly a lot of the clocks or most of the clocks on the wall in the pawn shop are set to 420. However, in the least, uh, in the last least two of the scenes, it's obvious that this is not the case. In the Bonnie situation, while Jimmy, Vince, and Jules are drinking coffee in the kitchen, the clock clearly reads 815. Secondly, when Vince and Jules go to retrieve the briefcase, it is 722 in the AM. Of course, 420 is slang for... Smoking marijuana. The, the, the devil's lettuce. Uh, Kyle Sylvester Stallone was briefly considered for the role of Butch. Who? That, if, yeah. If they would have played the Rocky music as he's fighting, he kills the guy. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things too. He, he he would have overwhelmed the film if it wasn't like you have you have a much bigger film with um, Sylvester Stallone playing Butch than you have Bruce Wallace. Bruce Wallace, even though Bruce Wallace is big at the time too. Um, let's see here. When the hit of the apartment takes place, the individual images are seen of Vincent and Vega and Vincent and Jules firing their guns. Both images are superimposed with a flash of the same yellow orange glow that is emanated by the briefcase. Other than a possibly other than this, possibly representing the dark divine blessing of their keeping in their face of their evil lord Wallace, <laughs> no indication is given as to what this represents. Due to the startling effect of the barrage of gunfire being pointed close to the camera, most viewers film most viewers of the film miss this orange flash even after multiple viewings. So there's a bit of a reading of um, some kind of like 
subtle fantastical elements going on with um, Marcellus Wallace's um, um, briefcase and what is contained in it. Some people speculate that it could be Marcellus Wallace's soul that he tends to sell to the devil for um, un, you know, for riches and um, evil earnings, basically like that. And uh, similar kind of things are uh, invested into, like people investigating and finding, like, oh, it has an orange glow when you're getting shot at. So it's kind of like almost like death and spirituality are kind of interconnected in this film in a very literal way of how things go and how people's souls are you know leaving the bodies that kind of stuff too um don't know if i quite accept these fan theories but like they're fun to speculate on nonetheless you so, know what i like think it is what is it what is I think, it? I think in the briefcase is a crave case from white castle it's a crave case from white castle that's exactly <laughs> what it is that's where the golden glow comes from because it just walks up to you it's the smell just hitting you you can see the smell um from white castle <laughs> They missed that. They missed that plot. Yeah. Um, in the special features, Tarantino describes Pulp Fiction as a salvation film. In fact, so once again, going more in that spiritual angle, um, with three parts of the anthology scene that's about a pumpkin and honey bunny um, during the, the the failed heist of the um, uh, the restaurant, the salvation of Jules when he doesn't die when they're shooting at him in the apartment hit, and the salvation of Butch and Fabian when they escape from the pawn shop and from the apartment and killing um, Marvin the other boxer. So that's where Quentin says it's a salvation film in his own eyes. Because each actor leaves their life of crime and goes on to do better things. Hopefully. So these are some of the uh, people that were inter- interviewed for the role of Mia Wallace. Kyle, let me know if you think they... Of which character? Marcel Wallace? Uh, Mia Wallace. Oh, Mia. Uma Thurman's character. Okay. Isabella Rossellini. Ah. Uh... I feel like I'm going to say no to all of these just because it's not Uma Thurman. I love Uma Thurman so much. <laughs> Meg Ryan. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like it right. Uh, Daryl Hannah. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head, so no. Joan Cusack. That? It's a different movie, but I still see it. <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, yeah, she could do that. Well, Tarantino said he preferred Michelle Pfeiffer, so. Yeah, I could see Michelle Pfeiffer doing it. I could see her even being in mind when you wrote it. Like, once again, when you're like, I had her in mind when I wrote this role, and then I got in with Thurman. <laughs> uh, when Vincent first walks into Mia's house, one of the back doors is slightly open. This was done so that the camera wouldn't be reflected in the glass. So Smart moves, smart moves. You just uh, gotta make do some Also, the restaurant scene was filmed at the Hawthorne Grill, originally Holly's, located at... 13763 Hawthorne Boulevard, Hawthorne, California. The building was demolished soon after filming, though. Oh, wow. He's lost history. Courtney Love claimed that Quentin Tarantino originally wanted Kurt Cobain and her to play Lance and Jody. However, Tarantino denies ever having ever met Kurt, <laughs> much less offering him a part. <laughs> so is that Courtney Love just being Courtney Love? or That does sound like Courtney Love being Courtney Love. <laughs> uh, in 2007, the uh, AFI, American Film Institute, ranked this as the number four, or sorry, number 94 greatest movie of all time, mm-hmm. which, debatable. Yeah. Uh, I might have this note later on in your book too, um, your notes too, but I know uh, Vic Vega is actually related to um, Vincent Vega from uh, Reservoir Dogs, and they're actually supposed to be their brothers, and there was originally a long-term plan to have um, a movie called basically The Vega Brothers, where it had been uh, Vincent and uh, Vic together, uh, Vin- yeah, Vincent and Vic actually together, uh, wait, what was it? 
what is the name of Vincent's brother in the Reservoir Dogs? Okay, whatever. Vincent's brother's uh, Ve- Vincent Vega's brother. They would be a Vega Brothers movie where they had that character from Reservoir Dogs and that character from Pulp Fiction in a prequel movie. But eventually, <laughs> it took so long. It's like okay, you can't convincingly play a prequel of these movies of these two dead characters. <laughs> so we'll just never make that movie. But I still would have loved to see that. Uh, today. Quentin Tarantino is an avid collector of vintage television show board games. During the filming of this movie, he and John Travolta were reported to having sat on the floor and played the Welcome Back Cotter board game in which John Travolta played Vinny Barbarino, if you remember correctly, Kyle. I don't know if you ever watched Welcome Back Cotter. No, I never watched that one myself. Uh, (laughs) uh, Bruce Willis worked on this film for only 18 days, and I'm sure he got paid handsomely. I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the character Jules as a Bible quoting hitman is a reference to the 1973 black exploitation film Sweet Jesus Preacher Man. <laughs> Never seen that, but that's an excellent title. Uh, according to our manager, Julia Louise Dreyfus turned down the role of Mia Wallace due to her commitment to Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where the fourth man emerges from the bathroom and unsuccessfully tries to kill Jules Vincent is a reference to a nearly identical scene in the film Buck and the Preacher. So, Buck and the Preacher, if anyone's ever seen that, I'm going to check that out myself sometime. Uh, towards the end of this film, Jules says he wants to retire and become a drifter. In Kill Bill Volume 2, Samuel L. Jackson turned up as Rufus, a piano-playing drifter. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Um, the, scene, um, the scene in the diner where the dynamic reverses and Jules is suddenly in control of the, uh, is, is in control of the, um, the diner robbery scene um, is a reference to the film, 1967 film, La Samaria. In that film, the character Jeff uses the same kind of sarcastic back-and-forth dialogue to gain advantage when another criminal is holding him at gunpoint. Hmm. So, fun fact there. Uh, Jules flipping the table over in the beginning was improvised by Samuel L. Jackson, and Frank Whaley's reaction was genuine, but they continued with the scene, and that particular shot was done in one take. Samuel L. Jackson commands the scene that way, and definitely gets you, like, you'll get you out acting on your game if you, like, throw them for a loop, like, oh, God, what is actually happening right now? All right, Kyle, here comes the big one. The big one. According okay. to leaked documents, the short list of casting choices for a number of characters is as follows, and you tell me if you think these people could have played, should have played... Or no, pump for pumpkin. Tim Roth, obviously, he played it. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp for which character? Pumpkin. Pumpkin. Oh yes, of course he could. Have, yeah, anyone. Yeah. Uh, Christian Slater. Uh yes. Oh, he would have been even better than Christian. Gary Slater. Oldman. Gary Old. Uh, I think he was too old for that. No, no, no. He wouldn't be too old for that. Um, same timeline as like the Hitman's Bodyguard or something like that, or uh, the Professional. Yeah, he'd be fine for it. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Uh, he owns every scene he's in, of course. Eric of course. Stoltz. Uh, yeah, he would be fine. And John Cusack. John Cusack. Uh, I couldn't. No, I wouldn't. I couldn't see that one. All right, this is for Honey Bunny. Honey Bunny. You know what? Amanda Plummer about. got it. Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette. Yes. Lily Taylor. Yes. Jennifer Jason Lee. Don't remember her. Bridget Fonda. <laughs> yes. Phoebe Cates. Yes. And Marissa Tomei. Ooh. If it was John Cusack and Marissa Tomei, yes. (laughs) Vincent Vega, are you ready? Yes. Michael Madsen. No. John Travolta. (laughs) (laughs) See if you're paying attention. (laughs) Alec Baldwin. (laughs) Too soon. Don't don't do it, Kyle. (laughs) I know you were going. Uh, Gary Oldman again. uh, Yeah, Gary Oldman could have done it. William Peterson. Uh, I don't remember William Pearson. Jason Patrick. Jason Patrick, yes. Andy Garcia. Ooh. That'd be interesting, yes. Michael Keaton. Wow. 
He doesn't have the hair for it. <laughs> but so no. <laughs> Denzel Washington. Ooh. Uh you know, I don't think they would have done a movie with two black hitmen. Um, so I can, I'm gonna say no, because like you wouldn't have Samuel Jackson, you didn't have Samuel Jackson, you don't have the movie. Sean Penn. Ooh, Sean Penn. Man, Sean Penn, I haven't seen I don't I'm going to be careful in case he did anything messed up in the past 20 years. I miss Sean Penn, <laughs> but I don't know why. Um, but, yes, he could have played that role. Tim Roth? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's in the movie. Um, playing Vincent Vega? No. Dennis, doesn't have Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid. Uh, yes, Dennis Quaid. Robert Carradine. Robert Carradine. I can't place the face on his on him. I can't remember him. Okay. And Aiden Quinn. Aiden Quinn. No. All right, here's Jules. Lawrence Fishburne. For, for, oh, oh, Lawrence Fishburne. Oh yeah, I re- there's a story about this. I got a I got a quick digression. Um, the reason he uh, Lawrence Fishburne was in the mate um, in the Matrix was because he basically as a long story like he turned down the role of playing Jules in Pulp Fiction, and then later went on to become um, uh, uh, Morpheus in the Matrix movies um, because of like the way he denied that role and came to this role. So it's like a different timeline where like you could have seen it reverse where Samuel Jackson played Morpheus and then he would have been Jules in Pulp Fiction. Different timeline. Would have loved to have seen it. So I'm going to say yes. Eddie Murphy. Eddie. <laughs> That's great. Um, I know. I can't imagine it. I'm, I'm Charles sure. S. Dutton. Charles S. Who? Dutton. Dutton. Uh, I don't remember that name. No, and sorry. Michael Beach. Michael Beach. No. Butch. Here we go. Matt, Butch. Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. No. Don't remember the name. Don't remember Matt. You know who Matt Dillon is? If, if I saw a picture of him right now, I'd drive him right, but the, I don't. Maybe the guy from Something About Mary, the, the, the guy that. You know what I'm talking about? No. Oh, no. <laughs> throwing me off even more now. Sean Penn. Sean Penn. Uh, we're on Butch, right? No, no. Nicholas Cage. Uh, who? Yes, you probably could have. Aiden Quinn. Aiden Quinn. Yeah. Johnny Depp. Uh, Johnny Depp. No, too young. Um, this one. Uh, I'm not even gonna do this because I don't know half. The, I can't pronounce half these names. So I'm not okay. Do this one. Uh, Winston Wolf. Are you ready? No, Harvey Keitel. Oh, for oh for Wolf. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. I, I thought I think you said not, I thought you meant that's an actor's name. Like what's the Wolf? I don't no, know. No, what's the Wolf? Okay. Um, what's okay? What's the last celebrity name you just Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. Yes. Warren Beatty. Yes. Probably. Al Pacino. Absolutely. Danny DeVito. Uh, Danny DeVito. Oh my God! I want to see that so bad. <laughs> yes. Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Alec Baldwin. What I would love to see there was Samuel Jackson playing the wolf and playing Jules at the same time. <laughs> and no one brings it up. That'd be so good. Um, yes. Michael Keaton. Absolutely. John Travolta. John Travolta. Uh, yes. Christopher Walken. Uh, yes. Michael Parks. Yes. And Charles S. Dutton. Yes. Uh, for Lance. Mm-hmm. John Cusack. Uh, yes. Eric Stoltz. Yes. Michael Keaton. Yes. Christian Slater. Yes. Gary Oldman. Yes. Robert Carradine. We've yes. obviously re-established that Kyle doesn't know who it is, but he's just saying yes for him anyway. I'm saying yes for um, everyone. Bill Paxton. Anyone can play. Anyone play. Bill Paxton would have been even better. Yeah, Bill Paxton, emphatic yes. I would have loved Bill Paxton in that role. Uh, Johnny Depp. Uh, yes. Nicholas Cage. Absolutely. Samuel Jackson and Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts, yes. Samuel Jackson, no. Jody. Patricia Arquette. Uh, Jody, wait. Which character is Jody again? Was that the girlfriend of Lance? Lance's girlfriend? 
Um, I think so. Okay, we're looking your. Oh, you didn't what? do that. My one, did cast, you? No, I didn't do Jody Patricia Knight. Arquette. Uh, let's go through this list. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't remember who played Jody now, so I don't want to. I don't want to say yes or no. Uh, I look it up real quick. Yeah, look it up. We will take a quick uh, break, real quick. One quick. No, break. we're not. We're not gonna break. Just look it up. I'm just okay. gonna keep going. We're doing it live, folks. We're doing it live. Kyle right. always got to take breaks. Just, I just, I know, I know, I know. These darn bodily functions, I swear. We just like to see how unprepared you are, Kyle. Uh, that's the answer. Is always, always unprepared. Never prepared. If I was prepared, it'd be, um, it'd be a miracle. It'd be the end of the universe, the sign of the end times. Uh, I can't type in Judy to save my life right now. Quarter pounder. Jody, Jody said, "Okay, oh Jody, yep, that is the that is Lance's girlfriend. Yep, okay, Lance's girlfriend, and was played by um, oh Rosanna Arquette. Okay, so okay. give me the list again. Patricia Ar- Arquette. Patricia Arquette. Yes. Bridget Fonda. Yes. Jennifer Bills. Yes. Pam Greer. Yes. In Bushy Wright. I have no idea who that is. Kathy Griffin. That sounds distracting, but also yes. Angela Mills. Uh, yes. Sophia Coppola. Wow, that would. Oh wow, crazy. Jasmine Guy. Wow, that would, that would be crazy. That's a weird thing. Like it's like it's such a small role to me, and like that. Okay, that'd be Tyra weird. Farrell, Lily Tyler, and Jennifer Jason Lee. I'm gonna say yes to all of them because I think it's a role you can kind of play by anybody. All right, here's Mia. Mm-hmm. Virginia Madsen. Yes. Marissa Tomei. Absolutely. Patricia Arquette. I always think Mr. Moore, Mr. Tomei. Um, what's your last one? Repeat that. Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette, yes. Alfrey Woodard. Don't know that person. Jennifer Bills. Mm, yes. Pam Greer. Yes. Phoebe Cates. Yes. Bridget Fonda. Yes. N. Bush Wright. Yes. Jasmine Guy. Yes. Angela Bassett. Yes. Annette O'Toole. Wow. That would have been okay. Be yes, interesting too. Uh, Deborah Winger, yes. Robin Wright, you know who Ooh, that is, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Cinda Williams and uh, no. Meg Tilly. Meg Tilly. Yeah, yeah. Is it was uh, it was again like like no no character couldn't play her. I, no actor couldn't play her. But I guess like the actor they got for it is like good for Mia. All right, I think that's enough of these because the next one was Captain Coons. Do you want me to do Captain Coons or do you want me to skip Captain Coons? Uh, you can do Captain Coons, sure. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Yes, of course. <laughs> that you played him, yes. I know. I know. Well, I'm just... Uh, Sean Penn. Sean Penn. Um, oh, Sean Penn. Um, man. I'm actually not... I'm going to say maybe. <laughs> Michael Parks. Michael Parks. No. William Devane. No. Charles Sutton. Yes. Robert De Niro. Oh, yes. William Peterson. Yes. Al Pacino. Yes. Well, I guess we got to do Marcellus. Yes, do Marcellus. Ving Rames, of course, he did it. Yep. Samuel L. Jackson. No. Ken Forey. No. Sid Haig. Sid Haig? Yes. That'd be interesting. James Englehart. No. Jim Brown. Yes. Bernie Casey. Yes. Carl Weathers. Carl. Oh, no. What? So, 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 okay. There's something about this that, like, the more you're going through it, the more I'm thinking about it. You have to think that all of these actors would have to consent to the pawn shop scene. <laughs> <laughs> and that 
changes a lot of what these characters, <laughs> these actors are willing to do. <laughs> so it's like I can't see Carl Weathers in the pawn shop scene specifically. <laughs> so no. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm gonna skip the rest of those, and then uh, <laughs> we're gonna skip this character, Maynard. Are you ready? Maynard. Uh, that was oh, which which character? <laughs> good, good grief. Oh, Bob, just gonna say this. Bruce Campbell. Oh, of course. Okay. <laughs> I All thought right, you yeah. would. Yeah. Uh, Sid Haig again. Mm-hmm. A couple others. And then Zed, we had Sean Penn, Michael Parks, and Craig. It seems like he just gave like 30 actors, like, if you want to roll, yeah. just take it. <laughs> There's a list of the same people over and over. Exactly. Pick who you want. Mm-hmm. What do you want your name to be for this movie? Yes. <laughs> this was one of the first movies to use the internet for advertising. Oh, the first movie? One of the oh, first. Oh, one movies. of the first. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool fact on that one thing. Like, they had their own little website. I'd love if it was still up, like, the Space Jam website. It was just, like, the still the Pulp Fiction.net. Hilarious. Uh, Actually, the Space Jam website in did Cap- die. In Captain America, the Winter Soldier, when Nick Fury, who was played by Samuel Jackson, stands by the headstone at his grave, the marker reads, The Path of the Righteous Man, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. So... A little crossover from Tarantino movie into the MCU there with Nick Fury's headstone. Yeah. Oh, in each of the vignettes, which is the word I was trying to think of a lot earlier when you asked me for the synopsis, so like it was, I wouldn't say it was a vignette movie, um, but in each of the vignettes, an unexpected incident of death forces the characters to seek refuge in somewhere attempt to rectify the situation in each scene. Butch incidents, incidentally kills his opponent in the ring and has to go to a local hotel to hide from Marcellus. Vince accidentally kills Marvin and he and Jules have to go to Jimmy's house to resolve the situation. And Mia Wallace unintentionally overdoses on heroin and Vince has to take her to Lance's house to attempt to revive her huh. in each of the vignettes. So that's where the commonality of salvation comes <laughs> when, he shoots, when he shoots the guy in the car. Oh, shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> you what? <laughs> Blood so, just goes everywhere. So good. Um, there was, um, I probably have I have a letter here, or I might have deleted it. But um, there was a scene later where, like, it wasn't going to be shot in the face. Instead, it was going to be like just they shot Marvin in the neck, and he was going to die a slow, painful, and depressing death. But um, uh, Phil Lamar was like, "No, that's too dark. We can't do that." Yeah. Um, everyone will think that like Vincent and Jules are terrible people if we do that, um, even though they really are. <laughs> so, but if you want them to stay likable in this movie, we can't just do this horrible, gruesome death by accident. Um, instead, like, let's just do it. Have it do a clean, simple. Bam, he's done. Um, then it'll be a lot easier. Uh, Enough to get the exploding head, which you love, of course. Right. Uh, this movie was the third biggest R-rated earner of 1994. The film lost out on the title to True Lies at $146.2 million and Speed at $121.2 million. The film's earnings were strong enough to place it in the overall top ten for the year, though 1994 was dominated by Forrest Gump. Which brought in three hundred and twenty nine point six million dollars that year. What a great year for films! Really, wow. You know, Forrest Gump, Speed, Pulp. Wow, that is a Pulp that Fiction. Is a, uh, that is an all true lies. Year. Yeah, True Lies. True Lies is really good. Yeah, I don't think people talk about True Lies anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good movie. Yeah, but also Speed, Tendra Bullock. You know, Keanu Reeves. Oh, so good. Uh, of course, Forrest Gump is a classic. We need to cover Speed. That was a good movie. Speed is like. Dennis Hopper. Yeah, Dennis Hopper, man. That dude. (laughs) Uh, The scene where Butch uh, parks his car when going back to his apartment was filmed only one and three-fourths mile from the pig burger in the movie Better Off Dead, which you need to watch, Dallas. That's the John Cusack thing we're talking about, right? And I can't believe it, but this film is actually included on Roger Ebert's great movies list. We talk about so much about Cisco and Ebert, about how much they hated movies, but he actually put this on one of his great movies list. 
You know, sometimes it's worth noting that, like, like the like they had very particular reasons for the movies they liked, and that's always kind of worth investigating. Like the movies they didn't like, I don't really think that much about. But like the movies <laughs> they, they liked, like. they have a very specific reason why they liked them, and like it's a reason like you can disagree with or agree with, but you always understand it. And that's what makes them great reviewers. Like it's not that you agree with them; it's that you understand why they have that opinion, right. and they do a great job of that. So Siskel and is why I always kind of admire them to this day of all the work they did. Um, let's see here. Um, this film is in the official top. 250 narrative feature films on Letterboxd. Um, huh. The company Letterboxd. So, cool. Top 250 films. That seems like that's a wide area of films, though, for right. granted. Yeah. Um, and the scene where Captain Coons, who was played by Christopher Walken, is giving young Butch the gold watch. Walken appeared to pause during the end of his explanation for the story behind the golden watch. This is because Christopher Walken had forgotten his next lines before recovering in time to make it look as though he had paused <laughs> on purpose. It was decided to leave this error in the film due to how authentic it appeared. <laughs> Can you imagine him just standing there like... <laughs> just the awkward silence and then finally yeah. recovering last second. Oh, yeah, I got it's it. so good. Oh, man. That whole scene is just so... That is the most out of place scene in the whole movie, but in a way that I still appreciate because it, it just—it feels so absurd. Just going up this kid like, "Listen, your father had this watch up his butt for years, and now I'm giving it to you. Did you watch it? No." <laughs> and then he died of an infection. He probably got from the watch, actually. <laughs> That's, that's also the implied thing I always think is like somehow the watch caused him to get his affection really? to die. That's what I always assume that the watch killed his dad and then just <laughs> Kyle that's, that's, Kyle. Just, that's always been my little fan theory is like the watch like having the watch of his butt is what killed him <laughs> well he still washed his butt Kyle <laughs> still still that's what I always I hope imagine. it was waterproof like, I, I think like you probably just you put the watch up there cut himself slightly got an infection in time. Oh, that's, God. that's always been my assumption that the watch killed his dad um sorry okay <laughs> back to the movie notes um Mia debunks Vincent Rimmer about her husband throwing Tony out the window for giving her a foot massage and states the only thing Antoine ever touched of mine was my hand when he shook it at my wedding after which um Vince, after Vincent drops her off Mia at her house she gives him a handshake as well so kind of uh foreshadowing that like you're gonna get killed <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Monster Joe's was filmed uh, only one and a half miles or two and a half kilometers from the surplus city in the movie Commando. Commando. That's another great underrated flick. That's a great, like, I remember, like, uh, that, the whole scene where, like, Warren Switzer just has a huge log on his arm just carrying around, like, oh, I just do this all the time. <laughs> I'm a manly man just carrying a tree. Was that also <laughs> the one where he, he grabs the, uh, in the mall or whatever, and he swings from the top of the, uh, Balloons or whatever they are hanging from the rafters all I the way down. So. Remember? I know there's a scene where he throws a circular saw like a ninja star and it just impales somebody with it. <laughs> that would be so good. That movie too, man. That's <laughs> young Alyssa Milano in that. Exactly. Yeah, great movie. Um, that's here. Oh, um, uh, Pulp Fiction was released in the fall of 1994. Around that time, Matt TV debated on Fox. One of that show's earliest skits was a mashup called Gump Fiction, mostly recreating <laughs> scenes from Pulp Fiction, but with Forrest Gump taking place of Vincent Vega. Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction were two of the most hyped films of that year. Because Phil Lamar was in Pulp Fiction and also part of Mad TV, he reprised his role as Marvin and recreated the scene in which he goes into shock as people are gunned down in his apartment. And the time he's shooting, No, not again! <laughs> I'm just picturing Forrest Gump in the pawn shop scene. <laughs> 
I have to post a YouTube link. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan! <laughs> we'll have to find it on YouTube and post a, a link on that on Facebook group or somewhere else. Oh, man. On the, on, uh, on the, on the social media formats. TikTok. Yeah. Uh, on the clock. <laughs> Uma Thurman was reportedly very nervous during the dancing scene with John Travolta as he was famed for his dancing ability. He reputedly told her to shut up and twist when <laughs> she was mentioned it to him. Uh, let's see here. Um, spoiler for the plot of the movie here. Quinn Tarantino hesitated over the choice between the character he was going to play, Jimmy or Lance. The initial plan was that Tarantino would take one actor and Eric Stoltz would take the other. Although Tarantino had originally intended for the actors Jeff Goldblum, Steve Buscemi, or Bill Paxton to play the role of Jimmy, none of those choices were available and only Stoltz could make the shoot. He ended up choosing Jimmy's role because the time was running out on a casting deadline and because he wanted to focus on the direction during Mia's overdose scene. Um, so that's why he did that. Interesting little fun fact there. And of course, he already went through the whole thing of like, which characters could have played Jimmy? So, and, mm-hmm. and none of them could. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, first thing, um, spoilers. So this is going to be about the whole um, suitcase theory about what's in there here. So speculation abounds as to the nature of the mysterious glowing contents of the case, which Tarantino said was simply a McGovern plot device. Could it be Elvis's gold suit seen worn by Val Kilmer in True Romance? The most persistent theory is that the um, contents of the case are Marcel Wallace's soul. The story goes that the devil takes a person's soul and is removed to the back of the head, though it should be noted that this part of the devilish lore is found nowhere in the Bible. When we see the back of Marcel's head, he has a band-aid covering the precise spot indicated by the tradition, supposedly for the soul removal. Perhaps Marcel sold his soul to the devil, which would explain why the combination of the briefcase is 666. Yeah. And Quintino said that the band-aid on the back of Marcellus's neck had nothing to do with the allusion to the devil stealing Marcellus's soul, but that Vig Rhymes had cut himself shaving and used the band-aid to cover the cut. So it's, it's kind of the thing where like I don't kind of accept the theory too, is that Vig Rhymes has a really crazy scar on the back of his head anyways. They just could have used that. They said he got his soul out there because he already does have a crazy scar back there in right. his gut. They could have just used that instead of the band-aid to imply that a soul got ripped out of the back of his head, which crazy to think about kind of metal. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Let's go back to where I was reading there. Um, but that thing right, comes up saving you the minute. Okay. And according to Roger Avery, who co-wrote the script with, Tar- with Tarantino, the original plan was to have the briefcase contain diamonds. Um, um, urban legend has it that the diamonds were going to be the same diamonds that were from the Reservoir Dogs movies back in 1992. The Reservoir Dogs movie in 1992. Um, this seemed neither exciting nor original, so Avery and Tarantino decided to have the briefcase contents never appear on screen. This way, each film filmmaker could mentally fill in the blank with whatever struck this her imagination, his or her imagination, as best fitting the description of so beautiful. The orange light bulb uh, projecting shimmering light onto the actors' faces was a last-minute decision and added a completely unattended fantastical element to the film. In one radio interview with Howard Stern in late 2003, Quinn Tarantino was asked by a caller of the contents of the briefcase and the answer is, it's just whatever you want it to be. It's a pure MacGuffin device in his mind of Quinn Tarantino. He doesn't really speculate about what it was at all. Just like, hey, it's whatever you want it to be. You know, it's important to Marcellus Wallace. It's clearly valuable to everyone else who sees it, but it's Marcellus Wallace and it's in his briefcase. That's all they know. You know, it's probably his dirty laundry for real. Just, 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 just some dirty underwear. Some dirty underwear. Just, just right there. Pack of salting Marcellus Wallace, he has gold, dirty underwear that he just puts in a briefcase, as you do when you're a rich man. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, but that is that is the theory of the briefcase. Me personally, I'm kind of same thing. Like, it's just the MacGuffin, so I don't really speculate about it too much. But the um, the soul theory is pretty well thought out, and I think it's pretty fun to kind of like speculate in those kind of things. But 
I have no really opinion out of it, like what actually is in there. I think it's just a light bulb. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jimbo, what do you think about the um, suitcase theory? I told you, White Castles, baby. It's, it's, the, White, oh, it's, it's the White Castle Crave case. That's what you mentioned earlier. Or, or you know what? It'd be really funny if it was a, a piece of a gold member's flesh in there. From gold member's flesh. Flowers. Yeah, yeah. Ralph's gold suit, I think, is great in true romance. I think that's a cool idea. Or it could be the. Uh, the statue that Indiana Jones steals at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it's just it's just it's just plutonium. It's just, <laughs> just weapons grade plutonium. <laughs> Marcel's boss is getting really into the war games. <laughs> um, all right, uh, further spoiler here: the submachine gun used to kill Vincent in the um, uh, the one of the last scenes of the movie is known as a Mac Ten. It fires one thousand rounds per minute and has a load capacity of thirty nine millimeter shots. Given the length of time that Vincent is shot, he probably takes the complete magazine. So he definitely didn't survive. He took thirty rounds to the chest. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're a video game character, you can't survive that. <laughs> Unless you're John Spartan in Halo, taking thirty rounds to the chest, you're probably dead. You know, if you're in a video game though, it's like ah, he'll be fine. It's a flesh wound. <laughs> Yep. Uh, further springs. Um, the uh, pawn shop has a sign saying "Killian's Red," um, and it's partially lit. It actually reads "Kill Ed." A few seconds later, you see Butch pick up the Zed's keys. There's a Z on the keychain. Put it all together, and it just says "Kill Zed." The character is like Zed, who's dead. <laughs> but in um, red, in, in red, <laughs> it rhymes. It's the neon sign's red too. Yeah. See, it all weaves together. It rhymes like poetry, like Charles Lucas said. <laughs> Um, spoiler, something bad happened every time Vincent, um, John Volta's character, went to the bathroom, always <laughs> with a Pulp Fiction book to read, which upon his exiting involved him uh, um, finding either Mia overdosed on heroin, pumpkin and honey bunny trying to rob the restaurant, or Butch shooting him to death. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, um, Vincent, man, he just, he always paid for it whenever he had to go to the John. <laughs> So uh, that's a funny thing. Oh, um, and one last uh, spoiler note here. According to Samuel Jackson, Quentin Tarantino originally planned, um, originally wanted um, or planned to have Max Julian play Marcellus Wallace, but Julian turned down the role, objecting to the um, the pawn shop scene. Jackson told Mark Scene in Vanity Fair article that Cinema Tarantino. The making of, oh, um, in the article, Cinema Tarantino, The Making of Pulp Fiction, Max Julian wasn't going to do that. He's the Mac. He's Goldie. He's like, no, I don't think my fans want to see that. Um, Max Julian, of course, a great black exploitation actor in the um, 70s and 80s. And uh, so, Legendary Angel and Wright, I understand him too. Like, one of the things, like we said there in the early Marcellus things, like, all those actors would have to agree to play in the pawn shop scene, and also, I, are you willing to see them in that compromised state? Um, so, and it's like, ah, no, actually, I can't believe Carl Weathers would be there, for instance. <laughs> Same thing with uh, Max Julian, like, eh, no, I wouldn't want to see him. What about Billy scene. D. Williams? Would yeah. you put Billy D. And, Williams in there? <laughs> I never even thought of that till just Ooh. right now. That's rough. I don't want to say I want to see anyone ah, in the pawn shop. I don't actually want to see anyone in the palm shot scene because he don't want that scene to really exist. But also, it makes sense for the film. Even Big Rhyme is like, oh, I don't want to see that have the Big Rhymes ever. Um, I'm kind of digging a hole for myself. If I want to say I want to see any actor in that scene. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, that character though, um, a lot of cool actors could play that character, but also had a lot of good reasons to deny playing that character for obvious reasons. So that's the spoiler there for notes there. And I think that's all the notes I captured in there. So that's my station of the notes. So, Jimbo, how do you feel about the movie Pulp Fiction, directed by Quentin Tarantino in 1994? 
and written by Quarantino in 1994 and Roger Avery in 1994. I'm gonna keep talking till you interrupt me. So, so Jules <laughs> well, played in 1994, I was just Benson. a young kid. A kid a young, Nine, 94, uh, sophomore I was, junior. I was a baby. <laughs> yeah, I was a sophomore junior in high school. Probably um, less than a year old when this came out. <laughs> I I like the premise of the movie. I'll start by saying that I like the premise of the movie. A lot of the stuff in the movie, like drop an f bomb two hundred sometimes, uncalled for. Mm-hmm. Um, personal taste. Yeah. Um, it's just once they start doing that, then it kind of takes away for me the plot of the movie because you're just like, can we say something else besides the f word? Um, I love John Travolta. I love Samuel Jackson. Emma Thurman, not really a big fan of. I like Ving Rhames. Um, it's it's one of those. It's kind of like a mystery because different things are happening at different times. Even the end of the movie actually takes place before Vinny gets shot. You know what I mean? But yeah. you see Vinny get shot. Uh, not Vinny. What's his name? Vincent. Vincent. Yeah, he gets shot before the end of the movie because when he comes out of the bathroom, you know what I mean? So you're trying to put all these pieces together. Uh, so to me, it's an okay movie. Um, is it something I'll watch a lot? No. Um, I know a lot of people love this movie. Um would I can do I consider one of the top 100 movies of all time? I, I'm not to say no to that. Um, there is just too many movies that I think deserve to be ahead of this uh, movie, especially in the top 100 of all time. Mm-hmm. I can't put this up there. Um, was it a good movie? It was okay. Um, it's just you know, it's not it's not my cup of tea of a movie. Um, if I'm gonna watch something like this, give me Casino. Uh, you know what I mean? Give me, give me a, a Goodfellas, uh, yeah. Because at yeah, least, at least those had a story you could follow. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? This one was kind of all over the place for me, um, but it was it was just okay for me in my book. Yeah, I think uh, like uh, so. So I feel the other way about it. I feel very strong about this one. It was really good, but I also understand that Quentin Tarantino was a very divisive kind of like a, a director. Um, I think like he has a lot of uh, criticisms that I think are some are valid, some are a little invalid. But I think his stylings are very unique to him personally. That like, he is a he is like a like, almost like a rapper or a remix guy when it comes to making films. He just completely takes a scene or an idea from another movie and just rips it off entirely. But he does it in his own unique fashion. He does it with like a hundred films all in one film that he makes his own thing out of in a really cool way that I find interesting. But I also understand people go like, ah, it's just he's just recycling the same material. It's not original to him necessarily. I understand that criticism, and I think like it's to each their own to interpret it that way. And like I really enjoy his art for that reason. But I understand other people go like, eh, it doesn't really kind of work with me. And particularly with like the um, uh, particularly with like the amount of uh, curses and f bombs in the film, I I understand and kind of agree that like. Sometimes you um, grow redundant to it, and other times, like, like if you still want to convey strong language, I think that's really fine. But also, you can find more unique language to continually use and keep that um, vocabulary fresh. You can say things, like, you can make things sound even more kind of like a, a violence in the wordplay if you have like different words besides just saying the f word so many times. Mm-hmm. It just kind of like loses all of its meaning. Um, when you just overuse it like that all the time. Like, it's fun, no doubt. I use it too much in real life, too. But it's still one of those things where it's like, eh, you could, you could do better, I think. Um, so I understand and agree with that kind of sentiment. But overall, I think this film is pretty excellent in my mind. I've seen it probably at least half a dozen times in my lifetime, and I think it's... Every do you, time I do go you back, think it's top 100 worthy? Top 100 worthy? Um, 
personally, I would put it up there. Yeah, I think it, I think I can definitely put it up there for myself. Um, I think, but it kind of goes back into that same thing I just said originally. Like he remixes so many films and just kind of like takes their kind of scenes right, premises wholesale, and then does them again in this film or the other films he's done. That like at a certain point, like do you want to do you want to give the award to the what the original inspiration was, or do you want to give the world or the award to Quentin Tarantino who remixed it and made it more broadly appealing? Um, that kind of like falls to each their own how they want to say it because like Quinterney was the guy who put it all together at the end of the day but he still got it from everyone else like he was he was a community of the movies he watched growing up um, so it's 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 a it's a tough call to me to say like everyone should put him in the top 100 I think I would personally but like say it has to be on a definitive list I don't feel comfortable saying that one way or the other I think Quentin Tarantino um, deserves a spot in history um, for a lot of the films he makes um, for good and for bad sometimes um, but I still really admire him personally um, so that's kind of my overall take, but I I do deeply enjoy the film. I recommend um, if you're you know if you're of the, of the appropriate audience to watch an R-rated movie and are willing to um, see a lot of uh, you know hard subject matters. I think this is a really entertaining film to watch. So I'd recommend anyone see it who's of that kind of a sentimentality or like, audience. Yeah, see, it's always good that you know unlike people today we can agree to disagree and have a civil conversation about it. Kyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, with that being said, we are less. A little over a week and a half, uh, ten days, I think, uh, for our live show in Indianapolis, uh, uh, July sixteenth. Yeah, right yeah. um, so we hope everybody can come out and see us. Uh, Kyle and I are pretty excited about Absolutely. it. Absolutely, it's going to be a, a lot live of fun. show with uh, Hillbilly Horror Stories with Jerry and Tracy Polly, as well as Todd, Sean, and Nate from Middle Aged and Creeped Out. So hopefully everybody's getting geared up and making plans to come see us, and we can all bring Kyle a quarter pounder with cheese. And it, out, will be gone. Yeah, and it will be gone. It will be gone. like twenty sandwiches. It's like, oh god, I got to eat all of these now. If Darn. You, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast Group on Facebook. Hmm. Um, Kyle, what's the update on TikTok? It's on the clock. It's on the docket. Any month now, any year now, I'm going to get that done. You know, uh, right, maybe, maybe right, I right when, just do right TikTok, when TikTok Kyle, dies, I'll have the TikTok up and ready to go. And be like, you know, I you would think got it. between. Me and you, the millennial, you would already had TikTok account already set up and gone. Yeah, no, no, creating content. So, um, (laughs) well, I think we rambled on long enough for this episode. Um, If you want to check out our merchandise, go to redbubble.com. We got a shop on there. Uh, Just search the Tragedy of Cinema podcast or the Tragedy of Cinema, and it should pop up. It's a little hard to navigate, but if you go through there, we're on coffee mugs, Mm -hmm. t-shirts, plaques, postcards, stickers. Anything you want, pretty much. So they're good I th- products. I think I even are. I think I even saw a baby onesie on there. So I was baby like, "That onesie tragedy is something podcast." And I got you want to ne- see you want to see Kyle play the baby onesie. I got a new nephew now. And oh, I, yeah, I do, I do, I do. I, I should have pictures of you. You've known about this for a while, right? But like, I got a new nephew, and I'm thinking like I should get one for my little nephew now, and just make, make him wear that. <laughs> and then like I'm gonna like guilt trip my brother if he doesn't put that onesie on the child. What do you see? <laughs> well. Uh, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut.